the giant thinkers giant thinkers giant thinkers podcast hey guys welcome to the show i'm ram castillo and in this podcast i'm bringing to you top experts from various industries worldwide to learn from their success and to help us become better designers creatives and giant thinkers Giants, welcome to episode number 87. Today's guest is widely recognized for her role as a dragon and venture capitalist for 13 seasons on the multi-award winning TV series, Dragon's Den. She is the general partner of District Ventures Capital, a $100 million venture capital fund focused on helping market, fund, and grow entrepreneurs and their companies in the food and health space. She's launched, operated, and managed businesses for 35 years. Her strategies and business savviness are highly sought after, and she has helped businesses succeed from early stage startups right up to multi-billion corporations. She's also a three-time best-selling author and accomplished public speaker. To make mention of some of her recognition, she was voted Canada's Most Powerful Women Top 100 Hall of Fame the Pinnacle Award for Entrepreneurial Excellence, as well as Profit and Chatelaine's Top 100 Women Business Owners. She's a Marketing Hall of Legends inductee and a proud recipient of the Queen Elizabeth Diamond Jubilee Award. She's even served as an honorary captain in the Royal Canadian Navy. On top of that, she's a mother of four and a grandmother of five. Some of the topics we spoke about include how to navigate the ups and downs, characteristics of a great entrepreneur, how to assess risk, how to prove or disprove a market need, what world-class marketing looks like, and what makes a standout pitch plus so much more. So if you're someone that's interested in reaching hard and reaching high as an entrepreneur, then this episode is for you. A quick note from me before we begin, I invite you to follow me on Instagram. My handle is thegiantthinker as I share daily posts and stories on helping decision makers, business owners, and leaders get unstuck through human-centered design methodologies, creative strategies, and personal experiences. Send me a DM. I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on my handle, The Giant Thinker. All right, let's dive straight into it. I present to you the courageously transparent, kind, and thoughtful Arlene Dickinson. Arlene Dickinson, welcome to The Giant Thinker's podcast. I am thrilled to have you on the show. How are you doing today? Ram, I'm really great. And it's such a pleasure to talk to you. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge fan from afar of, of you. So, and thanks for inviting me on your show. It's a, it's a really fascinating podcast you do and you've had some great people on there. So I feel privileged to be here. Uh, that's, uh, you're making my heart sing there, Arlene, because I've uh, certainly uh, been looking forward to this for a very long time. And we connected actually for the listeners um, on Clubhouse, uh, which is how I got access 
to your amazing brain beyond what we see on uh, Dragon's Den and all the amazing shows you've been on. Um, so to kick things off, I usually have an icebreaker question, though that there's not much ice to break, but um, it's all original questions. So yours is, uh, I've never been to Canada before. But when I do, what's a must-do experience, something I must eat, I must see when I do go there? Where should I go? Oh, well, uh, there, there are many beautiful places in Canada. But, and I'm going to tell you coast to coast. So I would say you have to go to, you have to, go to Alberta um, because you have to visit the Rocky Mountains. I don't know if you ski. Are you a skier around? Do you have you ever skied or snowboarded? I've only snowboarded uh, once. Never skied. Okay. Well, all right. So just some beautiful, beautiful, um, majestic scenery there. And then you have to probably go to Vancouver because you can go to Whistler and you can go and see the ocean and you can go to Vancouver Island. And then you have to go to, um, on the other side of the coast, you have to go to Prince Edward Island and to Charlottetown and eat lobster there and, and meet the people. And you have to go to Fogel Island, which is rated one of the top hotels in the world. It's an amazing story in the middle of this tiny place in Newfoundland. Um, there's just so many. Canada is this, it's a, re, it's a country of regions and every region is quite unique. So you'd better come here for a year because <laughs> it's a big country and you can't just go to one place. <laughs> kind of like me saying, where would I go in Australia? I've been to Sydney and I've been to Queensland and I, but it's such a big continent, right? You can't possibly see it all, no matter how long you're there for. Oh, that's sensational. I'm glad this is recorded. So uh, I, I didn't have to write madly for all those recommendations. <laughs> I'll, do, I'll do the Arlene tour at some point, hopefully soon. <laughs> so. For the listeners, where would you say your expertise lies? Um, you know, I, I think I think I have a very high EQ, and so I would say my expertise lies in really, and which lead, led me to marketing. So my expertise really lies in in analyzing and understanding what people are trying to say versus the words that come out of their mouth. You know, I, I think that. You know, I, I think what made me a good marketer makes me a good marketer um, and an investor is probably my ability to really think about what the other person is feeling and trying to say and understand them. And, and because of that, you end up in a place where you think differently about the relationship and the partnership. And so I, I like to think that I'm empathetic and I like to think that I'm, um, that's one of my superpowers, I guess. And, and that makes me a good marketer because you really need to understand not just pop culture and what's going on around you, but also what, mo what motivates and drives people to behave and do the things that they do. And, and man, many marketers miss that in the theory and they don't focus on the, the reality of how people actually behave. And I know you're a student of that as well, Ram. Very much so. You know what? It's funny because when you've just said that, my next question kind of alludes to this. It's, it's actually... Um, can you share us a little bit about your childhood and how you grew up? Because I feel that um, just the warmth that you exude, Arlene, I, and I, I'm sure you're aware of this, but you have that gift of being able to make people feel like they can show up to their authentic selves. And you have this balance of when you, when you are speaking or advice giving or just sharing a story, I think people feel included. and. Um, how did you how did you get to 
to where you are now in terms of where it all began? Did anything influence you know your your journey there? I'm I'm sure it did. Does it does anything stand out? Yeah, I think. Um, listen, I was a um, a couple things I say. I was a immigrant to Canada. My family immigrated to this country when I was very little from South Africa, and it was Australia or Canada believe it or not. And my family wow. chose um, as many South Africans did back then. And my family chose Canada. And we came here with, with very little, um, very, very little. And I grew up in poverty. And I think coming as an immigrant to a country and growing up without any, any money or friends or relations, you know, like relationships, etc. I think that makes you uh, spend a lot of time in your own head around who you are and starts to kind of define kind of how you think about the world. And so I'd say that for me, I feel very grounded in that, you know, no matter how successful I am, I always still feel like I would rather talk to the people serving the food versus the people getting the food served to them. You know, like I, 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 I much more relate to the, 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 ever the everyday person I, I feel you know like sometimes I'm living some weird life that this isn't me because I don't feel like this is kind of who I am I, I I really relate to that hard working kind of person who gets up and just tries to do their best every day and isn't kind of surrounded by you know money and things to make them feel good but they're surrounded by their friends and their relationships and their environment and I don't know Ram it's 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 complex I guess but I can tell you at a, I've gone to a lot of high profile events and you're likely going to find me in the kitchen talking to the, the people there than you are to the people on the floor. Cause I don't really know what to say to the people on in their fancy outfits, but I do know what to say to the people that are doing the hard work. <laughs> so maybe that's, uh, that's, I don't know. that's excellent. And did, did you feel that you were more of an introvert and extrovert growing up? And, and also Arlene, what did your, your parents do? Do you think they're, their approach to doing the uh, the chatting with uh, the worker bee in the kitchen, <laughs> uh, you know, type of thing. Do, do you think that rubbed off on you? Definitely. I'm an introvert. I'm definitely an introvert. Um, like, I, and I think that's part of it because I, I'm real, it's really funny, Ram. Like I'm great in one-on-one conversations. I am okay in one-on like two or three people conversations get me into a cocktail party where there's a lot of people and they're just wanting to chit chat about nothing. I'm, I'm horrible. I, I want to just go home, pull the covers over my head. Um, but I think, I think, I think my father and my mother, my dad was an electrician when he came to Canada and he went back to university and got his PhD in education. He became a, um, he had a, a degree in education. And he actually created the first self-based um, educational software system that ever. And, but he bet on mainframe computers, which was his mistake, but he did very well with it. In fact, he had an office in Australia. Everything about my father was about education. So he was always teaching lessons. You know, he was always taking, he always took the time to make a stop, no matter what was going on and find the lesson in whatever was happening so that we could learn something. And so I think you know, whether it was um, unrest in Canada, you know, whether it was, you know, what was going on in South Africa at the time, whether it was talking about um, any injustices that were happening, he always made sure that we understood what was going on and that we, and that we applied critical thinking to the realities of what was going on, not just listening to the news, but really asking ourselves, why was this happening? And so I'd say, 
I, I think, you know, sat with my dad and my mom was, she worked out of the home. This was many, many years ago, but she worked as an administrative assistant at the university and she worked hard and she was, uh, you know, um, you know, a, a secretary basically. And she worked hard for many, many years doing that. And so they both were actively working. Uh, we were, we were middle-class by the time, you know, this was all happening. My parents got divorced when I was 13 and that was quite traumatic because I came from, I was the first kid in my school to come from a divorced family, believe it or not, because it was rare back then. Right. So it was, I think my upbringing just kind of taught me to pay attention to what was going on, to listen intently to what people were trying to say, to be unafraid of being vulnerable. To your point on vulnerability, um, the older I've gotten, the more I've realized that there is no shame in admitting the things that I feel and the things that I've gone through. And, you know, we try so hard our whole lives to create this persona that is, you know, <laughs> so much better. Clubhouse is a good example of that. I mean, you read the bios, you'd think you were talking to, you know, like a hundred Einsteins, right? But <laughs> you kind of dig down, you go, not maybe so much. Um, and I, and I think, there's no win in that. There's no win because when you walk out of the door, if you have to, to go to your work or to go to anywhere, if you have to put on a different facade in order to, you know, like be accepted, then you're never going to be happy personally. And it took me a long time to understand that. So I, now I realize that it's okay to make mistakes. I'm going to go back on this podcast and say, oh, I probably said that all wrong, or I should have said this, but I'm going to just be who I am with you today. And I'm going to make, you know, I'm going to probably say dumb things and I'm hopefully going to say some intelligent things, but no matter what, I, I believe vulnerability is the key to happiness because that's where you really find who you are and that's where you are okay being who you are. And that's what people I think are attracted to is genuine, authentic honesty. And you know what, Arlene, I'm, I'm only learning more about this. Um, at, at my age, I'm, I'm, uh, entering my, uh, past the, the mid thirties mark now for me, but it's, it's something that I feel, um, number one, I'm so glad you shared that because it's, it's what people can relate to. And, and even just, you know, what your parents did and, and the, the person that uh, you were as a child, um, all of that, I, I can relate to so much of that. Um, my, my dad was very hands-on with his job as well. And my mom was actually very similar. She, um, worked oh, really? as, uh, administrative assistant, um, while studying and then ended up being a secretary, you know? And so, um, thank you for sharing that. Um, the, the, and that probably, the, probably helps shape and inform you too, Ram, the same way, right? Like you start to see hardworking, you know, work ethic and, and this, the stress and the challenge of raising a family while you're doing that. I mean, right. Absolutely. You're still a baby, but still a baby. <laughs> But, you know, I, I have so much um, to cling on to, even with that story, and I'm sure the listeners do too. Um, you, you've spoken about dreaming big in, in previous um, conversations with, with others. You've said that dreaming big is what I wish I would have done sooner in life. Um, I'd love to know more about this and how might we apply this wherever we're standing at the moment, um, because you've also said, careful not to temper your ambition, reach hard, reach high. What comes to mind um, when, when you hear that back? So I'll tell you something really interesting. I am, when I when, when asked that question for a long time, when people say, you know, what do you wish you had done differently? I always used to say, I wish I would have dreamt bigger. 
And, and what I realized this last year, Ram, is that that wasn't my problem. I actually always dreamt really big. It was that I let other people tell me that I didn't have the right to dream big and that I didn't dare dream that big. That's where I made my mistake is that I listened to other people's view on whether or not I could accomplish the things I dreamt of. And, and, and that voice in my head of, it created a self-doubt and it created a, a sense of believing that I didn't have the right to, to, to do the things that I wanted to do because who, who was I, right? So it wasn't that I wasn't dreaming big, which I thought for years I was blaming myself thinking, oh, I should have dreamt bigger. And then I started realizing that, no, wait a minute, I did dream big, but people used to tell me that I couldn't do those things or, you know, like, or that I wasn't, you know, I didn't go to university. So who did I think I, how did I think I was going to do those things? Or I didn't have the money or I didn't have the wherewithal or I was a woman or there was always this tape going on in my head from other people's views of what I could do. And I, I let them affect me. And it wasn't until again, until I got a little bit older, that I thought, hey, this is my life and I'm going to do everything I can to live my dreams. And that's when I started to really realize on my dreams. You know, it's funny how we can let other people dictate um, our own personal view of ourselves. Powerful. That's very, very powerful, um, Arlene. Um, thank you for sharing that. And let's swing the needle a bit to of course, entrepreneurship and, and business. Um, I think uh, that'd be highly valuable for, for the listeners here. Before we begin on that topic, what's your definition of the term entrepreneur? Uh, my definition of the term entrepreneur is somebody who takes risk to do something that they believe is possible. So it is you know, um, I, I differentiate an entrepreneur from a small business person as an example, not because small business isn't very important, it is, and not because small business owners aren't incredibly entrepreneurial, they are. But a true entrepreneur is somebody who sees something that somebody else can't see, understands it, and wants to take some risk, a financial risk to make it happen, and, and personal risk as well. So I think it's this, I think it's quite rare, true entrepreneurialism. We talk a lot about entrepreneurship. Um, and I think there are varying degrees of entrepreneurialism, but a true, like a true entrepreneur is somebody who sees something that hasn't been done or tried before and is willing to bet on that and bet on their ability to make that happen. And that's, I think that's, that's, I think the difference. Okay. Fantastic. So uh, I'm, I'm glad you said that my, my working definition isn't too far off then. <laughs> I was, um, I was also on that very shared um, definition um, around seeing an opportunity and improving it and um, and taking action on that. Um, that's that's phenomenal. Um, I've heard you also say in the past that it's hard to be an entrepreneur and a pessimist. I actually love that. Um, why do you think that's the case? Because you have to believe that it can be better and it can get better. If you you have to be I mean, I think you have to be a pragmatic optimist to be, you know, like, you, but you also have to really believe that just around that corner, you're going to break through just around that corner. You're going to make it to the top of that hill just around the corner. You're going to have that client or that customer or that success. Um, if you don't believe that you will not have the grit and determination you need to be successful as an entrepreneur. And that requires optimism. That requires hope. That requires, you know, hope is not a strategy as we've heard over and over, but it does require you to be hopeful and optimistic that you are going to get through whatever the mud is you're walking through to find out that you can walk on the grass again. And, and the, the, it's a, it's, it's an attitude. 
And there's certainly uh, an implied roller coaster ride in that the messy middle, um, the the rough rough ocean, so to speak. Um, and the thing that I, oh, one of the many things I admire about you, Arlene, is that you've been very transparent as to how those rough seas have looked like and felt like f- for you. Um, you've often said that um, how you see people on the outside might not be what's really going on inside. Um, You've also been courageously transparent in sharing instances of your life where you've experienced things like special loans at the bank, been close to bankruptcy, have managed panic attacks, anxiety, depression. How do you navigate the ups and downs? Because this is, that's real life. And I think that people gravitate towards you and your story because as I said, you're just very relatable. Um, what are the things that come to mind for you when I ask how might listeners be able to navigate their current downs? It is such a personal journey. And, you know, um, I, would, I would say that one of the, the best pieces of advice I've been given in the last couple of years of my life um, most recently is, is to focus on my sleep, to focus on my health, to fo- so be active, to drink a lot of water, to it, little, it's, it's all, it's all basic stuff, Ram. It's nothing like, I wish I had some magic thing to say, oh, do this. But the reality is, is treat yourself well. Like, you know, if you, if you're suffering from these things, you know, take a look. If you're suffering from like, when I get anxiety, I can almost always pinpoint it to, I probably ate something I shouldn't have eaten, or it's not always, you know, sometimes anxiety, of course, is build up a stress and you might get a panic attack in the middle of the night, not after you've eaten something, but you can, you can definitely start to attribute, oh, I haven't been as active or I, I ate improperly or I had too much to drink or I didn't get enough sleep. These things are all um, contributors to anxiety and, and depression. And, and so I would say the first order of business is you take care of yourself and do what you need to do to make sure your body and your mind have the best possible chance of fighting the depression and anxiety. Um, and then, and then reach out to somebody, you know, anybody just talk to somebody. It's, it's okay to admit when things aren't great. And, and I know that's easy to say, I, I know that's easy to say. Um, but kindness to yourself is such an important aspect of all of this. And when I talk about worrying, you know, you, we would not worrying about what people, you know, you see all these people and they look good on the outside, they're dressed perfectly. They look like their careers are perfect. They, you know, they, they, they're beautiful, they're thin, they're rich, they're all this stuff. And then, but if you talk to them, they're, they're, they're full of so many so many things. And so you, maybe it's just getting to know some of these people. I realize that we're all just, we're all human and money sure doesn't make people better. It, and sometimes it makes it them worse inside of who they are. So I think, I think you have to just be kind to yourself and, and be thankful. I, um, I always say that the most important things um, are gratitude and generosity. If you start from a place of gratitude for whatever you have and gratitude for the air you're breathing, the country you're living in, the, the home you have, the roof over your head, the food on your table, um, and, you, and then go to generosity where you share whatever it is you have, um, you, will, you start to learn that uh, we're all in this together and you start to realize that it's not the material things that matter. And I, 
it, it, that it's about sharing the things that you you can share to have people live a life that's better. And I know, again, I, I know how trite that can sound because it's people will probably go, oh yeah, well, it's easy for her to say she's got money. But I can tell you, I have lived without it. And I have been as happy without it as I am with it. And it really is a state of mind for yourself about what you're finding happiness in. It's not in material things. Trust me, it is in liking who you are, liking who you see in the mirror. Well, there's so much in what you said, Arlene, and uh, there is great depth to to the the many nuances of of, of that um, of that thought. There, um, I mean, for me, just to respond to that, I actually have had moments where you operate long enough to convince yourself that you are happy, when in actuality, it's just masked with busy or stuff or another thing that is going to add to your your accolades or or something and it wasn't until uh and i'm sure i'll get many of these but it wasn't until uh, a few years back where i realized um oh my gosh i i was getting these panic attacks i didn't know why and what i ended up finding out was that um i'd been running running so I, i was actually severely bullied in in primary school um broke my arm three times and got 11 stitches before, um, before the wow. age of 11. And, and I think there, there were instances in my life where I think I buried a lot of things and, and just accumulated at a point in my early thirties where I was like, what am I doing? And I, yeah, I think it's important. My point is, I guess it's important to, um, to sit with yourself and it's terrifying for some. It was, I mean, not, not to play the comparison game, but I don't think I experienced half of what the stuff I've heard on, uh, on Clubhouse or what I read in the paper or wherever. And so it, it's just that. It's, it's certainly powerful what you said to sit with yourself, to be able to hang out with yourself and be, be happy with yourself. Um, I think there's a, there's a quote that Tim Ferriss posted of an of a ancient Chinese proverb, which is something like, happiness is no longer pursuing happiness. <laughs> so it's so simple, but yeah, I love that. Thank you. It, it is simple. And I, I love, I mean, the, the vulnerability you just shared by talking about being bullied and what that made you feel and, and that accumulated stress that you would have had from your childhood, Ram, is what hit you in your thirties and gave you panic attacks. And that's the other thing you learn about stress is that it builds. It's not what happened yesterday that gives you a panic attack or anxiety. It's what happened last year or the year before that just accumulates in your body and all the stress builds up. And it, it, it finally exhibits itself in a way that um, is very difficult to manage. And, you know, I said, I talked about like that, if that anxiety is in my body, if that stress is here and I eat improperly, it's more likely to surface in me. I mean, that's at least my experience. But I would say to you that your sharing of that story, listen, I was, I was a kid in school. I didn't have any friends. I was two years younger than everybody. I didn't, I only ever, I, by the way, I just graduated high school. I never had a, I never had a university degree. So I was like the kid, I didn't fit in anywhere. So I wasn't, you know, I mean, I was bullied for coming from a divorced family, but I wasn't bullied the way you were bullied. And I can only imagine how difficult that would have been, but think of the character it's given you now and the ability to look back at and realize that they were the ones who were wrong, not you. You did nothing wrong. This is nothing wrong with you. Um, and it makes me sad for 
people who are bullies because you will have to wonder what's going on in their life to make them feel that they can only feel better when they make somebody else feel bad. All of this, I appreciate that, Arlene. And, and a lot of this we're, we're talking about here are the, the traits and characteristics of a person, which um, blends perfectly to the question around there are, there are good entrepreneurs, but then there are certainly fair few great truly great entrepreneurs. Um, and so when you start to partner, and in fact, I even ask this question of when I hire someone, you know, what, what's the, what are the few things that are just standout characteristics? Do, do you have any that come to mind? And, and is there even an example of someone where you've gone, wow, that person is a standout? Yeah. I love when people can storytell you know, uh, like that to me really matters. Like when they can, when they can <clears throat> bring me in through their, when I talk to them about when I'm interviewing somebody and they can draw me into their life through a story that actually always gets to me because I know that that's somebody who actually understands the power of storytelling and also how to relate to another human. Um, I look for, <clears throat> I look for evidence of having, had some hardship of having had some pain that they've experienced, not, you know, like I was a triple A student and I went to the, you know, an Ivy league college or university. And I, you know, I, I was the chairman of, or the head of the debate club or that, that's awesome. But <clears throat> I want to know that they also, you know, um, struggled as, as, a, as trying to find a job and to find happy. Like I want to know something about them personally. So I'm looking for vulnerability. I'm looking for, you know, some sort of sense of less, not of entitlement, but sense of self in a way that is not arrogant, but confident. Um, somebody who can talk about the past as it relates to what they learned from it, not at what they got from it. You know, those are, those are some of the things I would look for. That's, that's very, very clear um, insight there. Thank you. We, we spoke about risk a little while ago. Um, how might one assess risk? Because I think, and you and I have been exposed to a lot of clubhouse rooms where um, the, the, the sort of theme that I've been finding is they just don't want to take the, the risk or the leap because ultimately for me, coming from a human-centered design background where there is a method to testing and iterating. So I look through a different lens that most may not um, because for me, it's all a hypothesis. It's all, it's all testing. You're always gathering data and then making incremental improvements. I mean, um, easier said than done, but, but that's the sort of approach. Um, so, so how might people make a calculated risk that those listeners right now, they might be sitting on the fence. They might have a very conservative risk profile. What would you say to them about risk and how to take action on the risk that they do? have the capacity for? Well, I don't think that an entrepreneur takes stupid risk. I think they take calculated risk. And so, you know, I think they're, I, I think you, you, you don't need to throw yourself into the, you know, the ocean to see if you're going to swim <laughs> and you've never swam before, right? What you need to do is say, you know what, I, I'm going to learn how to swim so that I can go into that ocean and you need to take the steps to get there. And then you're going to calculate, well, if I take a couple lessons, am I going to be able to swim enough? I think so. You know, there's a, there's a calculation in there. So I'd say it's calculated risk, not it's smart risk, not stupid risk. And then I'd say if you're sitting on the couch thinking to yourself, 
but I don't know where to start or I don't know if I should take the risk. You have to ask yourself if you will ever say to yourself a year later, five years from now, I wish I had done that. I, 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 you know, I, I knew it was going to take some time and all that time now has passed. And by now I could have been there, but it seemed so daunting at the beginning because how many of us have sat there and said, oh, I, I'd love to lose weight as an example, but it's going to take me a year to lose that weight. And oh, it feels like so hard. So we don't start. And then a year later, you think to yourself, oh, if I had just started, I'd have lost that weight by now. It's human nature, right? It's like it's no different than doing the business. You you have to. It's small little steps. You just do one foot in front of the other, and you just keep trying. And you will find suddenly that you're not only just taking the risk, that you're actually enjoying the journey, and you'll learn along the way. I mean, it's. Um, I think the worst thing in life, and I mean the worst thing in life, is living a life full of regrets. I, I looking back and saying, I wish I had. Why didn't I? I could have and didn't. Because life goes that fast. And before you know it, you're my age and you're going to go, you're going to look back and you're going to go, I lost the opportunity. And that's, that's not fun. That's not fun. We get one life, like live it. Real talk, real talk. Love it. <laughs> Aline, um, how would you suggest one validates a business idea? I think, although that's almost well, not really. It might not be business 101. For, for some, they genuinely don't know how to validate whether their idea is worth pursuing. And when we talk about risk, is there an approach that comes to mind when, when you might prove or disprove this market need, this idea? We know that the world isn't in a shortage of ideas. So yeah, how, how might one validate a business idea? We live in a world where, you know, well, first of all, don't ask your family and friends. That's it. Like, that's not where you start because your family and friends will lie to you <laughs> or they'll either tell you it's a great idea when it isn't, or even worse, they'll tell you it's a bad idea when it's a good idea. So you, know, like, you do not listen to your family <laughs> so and true. friends. Um, yeah, you, you go to, there's so many ways to test the market, whether it's your Kickstarter or crowdfunding, or whether you go online and do a survey or whether you, you know, you just go out and talk to people that are in the business related to what you're thinking of doing and ask their opinion. The challenge people have is they're so afraid to share their idea because they're afraid somebody will steal it. So they keep it to themselves and they don't ever ask anybody. And that's the biggest mistake you can make. Cause I got news for you. Nobody's going to take your idea. Like go do it. <laughs> like just go do it be the best at it and and you know like and if somebody does copy you well you know what there's room for more than one of you in the marketplace like there's lots of there's lots of market out there so just go do it and so i would say test it online test it you know research it test it online there's so many ways to do it go talk to people in the related businesses um do some research questions all those things it's it's not that hard to test whether or not the market thinks it's a good idea that's fabulous advice you mentioned that you were quite an expert in the marketing space. That's that's music to my ears. You're pulling on my heartstrings there because I, I certainly love um, marketing um, and and what it's able to to do for businesses and people. Um, what does world class marketing look like for you when when you apply world class marketing to a business? Let's say that's in its establishment phase because I got, I want to get really contextual with this. Um, you know, there's, there's so many ways to distribute a message um, and storytell and to create content and to affect emotion in people. 
so many channels. But for you, what does world-class marketing look like? And, and is there an example that comes to mind of a brand that does it well? Or maybe you might even have an approach through Venture Park that's, that's really key to ensuring that the marketing works. Great marketing to me is marketing that has really utilized the power of persuasion in a good way. In other words, it's not trying to sell something. It just resonates with somebody. It, 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 hits, the, it hits the audience in a way, it's intended audience in a way that you kind of go, yes, that, that actually is something that I, I want and I could use versus that's something that I should buy in order to make myself sexier or, you know, more attractive, or I should, I should use that product because I'm going to, you know, be richer or whatever that is. Like, you know, that, that marketing, I hate that marketing. That to me is manipulative marketing where you're playing on people's need to, you know, be something that they aren't um, versus aspirational marketing where you're, you're, you're talking about how you can actually help somebody accomplish the things they want to accomplish um, and that your product or service will help them get there. And I think I would say that, you know, when I think about ads like that and a couple that come to mind, but the first one that came to mind, so I'll use it is Nike. Nike's done a really good job of, you know, it tells you, it doesn't, it, it says, it doesn't say to you, well, Hey, where Michael, you know, when Michael Jordan wears these, these runners or these sneakers, whatever you guys, you call them sneakers, there, runners or whatever they're called. Um, <laughs> depending on the country you're in runners in Canada, when Michael Jordan wears those runners, they don't talk about the fact that the rubber is made of, um, you know, amazing properties that bounces higher or that, that the laces are made up you know, they'll never break because they've got a strength in them. That's amazing. Or they don't talk about the construct of the shoe. They talk about the fact that when you wear that shoe, you're going to jump higher. And, and, and I, and who doesn't want to jump higher. Right. And that's aspirational. That to me is very much about, reaching in and finding out what it is about our nature that makes us want to be more, not to attract somebody else or to do anything, but to accomplish something ourselves. And that to me is great marketing. When you identify the, the benefit, as we always talk about, not the feature um, of the product, but you also give people this, this, this understanding that this product is actually going to help me do the things that I want to accomplish. Now there's still a fine line between manipulative marketing that does that and persuasive marketing that has ethics to it. And I, I'm a big believer in that marketing doesn't have to be manipulative. It should be persuasive in a good way. Um, but I think, I think Nike's done a, a, a very good job of that over, over years, actually. I love that example <clears throat> because I remember when, um, I read a case study on Nike, funnily enough, recently about when they first launched the Just Do It campaign, they actually just, they, they, they put it out into the world, but they, they didn't know the emotional impact that it would create in people. And what had happened was people were writing to them about how they finally left that toxic job or that toxic relationship, or they finally climbed that thing that they always wanted to in, in whatever way that meant for them. And they did the thing that they always wanted to do and it encouraged them. It, 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 it was a voice for what people were wanting to do with their lives. And it was nothing about the shoe by the end. <laughs> so yeah, it's powerful. Isn't that it is it's so powerful. I mean, three little words that made everybody feel empowered. You know, three words. I mean, it, it just empowered us all to think about what was possible. That's good marketing. Totally agree. Um, 
So let's talk a bit about funding now, Arlene, because I think um, there, there are these words that get thrown around um, that I feel unless you watch shows like Dragons, then you, you, you probably wouldn't even know half of these words, let alone um, if you have heard them, what they actually mean. So can you explain funding to listeners who may not know the basic mechanics just in, in sort of basic sort of structural terms, but what are the basic mechanics when it comes to general knowledge of investing, venture capital, and all the words around, around that space? So the way to think about um, venture capital is it's, it's um, somebody who's willing to give you the capital you need to accelerate your growth to the point where they can get a return on their investment um, down the road, whether it's you, you selling your company or them exiting the company because you won't have bought them back out again. So in simplest terms, um, I'm going to give you some cash. You're going to give me a piece of your company in exchange for that. And together, we're hopefully going to grow your business to a level that you wouldn't have gotten to without my cash and without your hard work. And then we'll both uh, we'll both be successful at the other end of that, you know, four to six years later. And then with the, oh, that's, that's great, with the phases of seed round, round A, series A, series B. <laughs> so I get this question a lot. Angel investing, like, how, how does that all fit in? You know, that, that requires, for those people who are listening, you know, look up series A, series B, look up the different rounds of financing and where they come in. But most, most of the startups or the emerging companies are looking at what's called seed rounds, which is the early stage rounds that kind of help plant the seed inside the business so it can start to grow, right? So think of it that way. And uh, many venture capital funds will go series A and series B, which is just later stage investing a little bit more capital, obviously. Um, and then you get private equity that comes in later on and, and big checks and usually buys the business um, out in total. So it's, it's a, it's a complex world. It's not something that it probably, I, I won't even try to bore your, your um, viewers <laughs> with it, but I, our listeners with it, but look it up because it's worth knowing if you're going to try and get investment for your business, understand what type of investment you want. And, and remember that when you give up equity, you're giving up a piece of your hard earned work, but you might be able to grow your business to successful places that you never would have seen without that capital. So it's all about timing and the right partner. Perfect. And for those um, who, who are in pre-revenue, because I, I, I get this a lot as well, and there's um, people who are just on the brink of starting, like literally little to no sales to show. Um, yet we still see some of these on Dragon's Den and, and other shows similarly to it. But what considerations would you give to businesses looking for funding that are pre-revenue generating? Is there a chance for them to get funding, would you say? I would say that's when you do talk to your family and friends. <laughs> like, so don't ask them if it's a good idea, but do ask for their money. <laughs> You're very unlikely to get funding from a venture capital or a private equity firm if you're pre-revenue, unless you're in the tech space which is very different. So the tech space, um, for sure, they, they will fund pre-revenue companies. Um, but in my space, which is a consumer goods space and the food and health space is highly unlikely. So you need to have a, friend, a friends and family round. So that's where you go around to your friends and family and say, this is what I'm going to do. Would you like to invest in it? And they might you know, give you 100000 
depending on how rich they are, they might give you more than that. And that's where you raise that first round of money. And they hope that you're going to be able to turn it into a home run. But they're in it for the longer term because it's very early stage for them. And they had the biggest risk attached to it because you haven't proven anything yet. So you better be ready to lose your mom and dad's money. Right. And hopefully they yeah, still like I was going to say they, they could lose it all, right? That's the, yeah. that's the game. Um, yeah. And you've heard, I'm sure, probably hundreds, if not thousands of pitches. Um, what makes a standout pitch, Arlene? Are there, and I'm sure you get this question all, all the time, so, so pardon me for, for asking you, but, but I just want to take this opportunity to, to ask, what a, what's a broad outline of, or structure look like or, or mandatory? Is like a pitch is just not going to fly unless it has this in this order. So I know in Clubhouse, there's a lot of pitch rooms that get into this, right? And it drives me a little bit crazy, I got to tell you, because there's certain elements of a pitch that we want to hear. Um, we want to understand what the market opportunity is. We want to understand a little bit about why you're the person to realize the market opportunity and, and, and your team is. We want to know that you um, uh, have gotten some traction in the marketplace, right? We So there's things that we want to understand. But I personally, look, like I, I look for the things I said to you at the very beginning of this podcast. I look for people that are genuine and authentic because if they're trying to bullshit me or trying to, you know, act like I, I, I there's nothing that turns me off faster as an investor. Cause if they're, if they're trying to fool me now, what are they going to do later on? So I listen for that. I listen for honesty. And when I say honesty, I mean, are they honest about kind of what, are they self-aware? Are they honest about themselves? Are they honest about their successes and their mistakes in the past? Are they honest about what they really believe they can do and why they, and, and then, and the last thing I look for is people who identify a win-win. How are they going to win? How is the market going to win? And how am I going to win? So, you know, it, it, it like, because it is a partnership, right? But none of it works without the marketplace saying that it wants that product or service. So let's assume the market's going to win. I want to win, but of course I want them to win too, because we're in a relationship together. So those are the things I look for. Everybody pitches differently, Ram. Like, honestly, sometimes those pitch rooms drive me crazy. Well, you've got to have all these answers. Yeah, you need to know some basic fundamentals about your finances and you need to know some basic fundamentals about the marketplace. And yes, there's table stakes about you better know this, but the order that you give things in and Eh, you know, not necessarily. I mean, it's up to the investor to be an active listener and to hear hear the pitch. People get nervous. You know, if you if you just toss somebody out because they didn't give everything in the right order, then you're a bad investor because people get, you know, sometimes people just mess up their pitch. Like give them a chance to talk. Yeah, that's great advice. That that's great, great, great things to consider there. I have a few wound down questions that we that I usually uh, ask my my guests here, Arlene. Um, but before we do, I, I really wanted to touch briefly, if I may, on the the, the topic with which you've released your recent book, um, uh, your li- latest book, rather, Reinvention. Um, so, for those that might not know, th- this is your third book, if if I'm not mistaken, right, Arlene? And and it, it basically shares this blueprint um, for locating your sense of purpose, uh, realistically evaluating your strengths, assessing opportunities outside your comfort zone and, and charting this, this bold new path. I just wanted to know what, what does reinvention mean to you and, and what inspired you to, to write this book and, and how might listeners be able to get a hold of it? So reinvention to me means um, 
you know, people talk a lot about the word pivot, like pivoting. I, I think reinvention isn't isn't about so much a pivot as it is about um, allowing yourself to be the things that it is you really want to be. And and so you know, we we can sometimes find ourselves stuck in a job with kind of golden handcuffs because we can't leave because or we think we can't leave because of the money or but generally reinvention happens because something bad's happened in our, in our life like a divorce or we lost our job or somebody got sick or or um and any number of things the divorce you know like there's so many things that could happen right and so and that makes us pause and go well, heck, I'm going to, you know, change my whole life. And that's where you see people, you know, um, suddenly taking a new lease on life. But what they've really done is they've stopped and asked themselves what it is they really want in life. And it is this, it is usually this catastrophic moment or something that's tragic that's happened that makes you reassess the value of time and, and, and what you're doing with your life. And so that is what reinvention is to me. It's, it's, it's grabbing the opportunity to really assess where you are and decide whether that is where you want to be. And then if it's not, it's a process that allows you to find out where it is you should go. And it's, and I wrote it because um, there was a flood in Southern Alberta where my office, my marketing firm office was, and it almost destroyed the business. And, and, you know, at that point when this happened, Ram, the flood was all of Southern Alberta and it was the worst natural disaster in, in Canada's history. And, I just remember sitting there after 25 or 30 years in business thinking, I don't, why do I need to run this company? You know, like I, I don't, that's not what I, where I make my money anymore. I should just shut it down. The bank was telling me to shut it down. And then I started thinking about the fact that it was the business that had really brought me up, that it was a business that still employed, you know, many, many people. And it was the business that clients relied on. And I thought, I just can't, I can't turn my back on it. And so I decided to reinvent it instead. And everybody told me I was crazy. They said, oh, you shouldn't reinvent it. What are you doing, Arlene? This is crazy. Like, you know, it, throwing good money after bad, just let it, you know, just shut it down. And I decided, no, I was going to change the way and the direction of what it was. And, I, and that's when I realized how important entrepreneurs were to me and how important um, the food and health space was to me. And that's out of that, out of that flood where everything got destroyed, I created my fund. I created the Venture Park Business Growth Ecosystem. I changed everything that I was doing to become a, a whole different uh, opportunity for the people that work with me. We pretty much doubled our size. We changed our revenues and, and everything completely changed because I took a moment in time to say, I'm not going to quit. I'm going to change. I'm going to do what I always wanted to do with it. And, and so I wrote the book because I wanted other people to understand that it's a process and that anybody can reinvent themselves, anybody. And it's, it's a step-by-step -step process of how to do that. And um, it came from a real sincere place of, of pain, uh, the pain of having to watch a business that I had grown for 30 years uh, falter. Uh, and that it was a, uh, it was a flood that blindsided me, but it actually enlightened me at the same time. At the end of the day, it enlightened me into the future. So, yeah. And, and I'm sure that's only one of many uh, events in your life that, um, that you, that we can cling on to, 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 uh, apply this, uh, this thinking to, and, and to that point, I think it also allows us to access reinvention multiple times in our life. <laughs> um, so that's powerful.
So as we wind down now here, Arlene, a few more questions. Uh, One I ask all my guests, if you can travel back in time for 30 seconds and speak to your younger self, perhaps the young Arlene finishing high school, what would you tell her? That it's going to be okay. Perfect. Didn't need 30 seconds, did you? I I can tell you I didn't think it would be. So I I, I think Mm. many times in my life I wondered if it was going to be okay, but it's going to be okay. Who has been a a giant thinker, uh, an impactful giant thinker in your life, Um, Arlene, a a person that comes to mind that's inspired you to think bigger and dig deeper in helping you reach your full potential? Definitely my, my, my father, um, for sure. He was, as I said, he created the first self-paced um, educational software in the world. And he did that when he was in his late 40s. And um, in fact, he might have even been in his 50s at the time he did it. And now that I think about it, and he was, he, he never stopped learning. He was a lifelong learner. He really taught me the power of, of as I said, of critical thinking and of, of, of thoughtfulness. He, he was, he was definitely the, a very influential man in my life. And what's next for you, Arlene, uh, with everything that you're involved in, um, for the next year and, and, and beyond. I'm gonna, you know, I'm, I'm going to continue to invest in entrepreneurs and continue to build out this ecosystem that I've created and, and find ways to support and give back to I just want to give back. I, I, I'm at that stage in my life where I really want to do what I can to help other entrepreneurs and just and, and help. I, 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 we all came out of this pandemic, Ram, I think, injured in our own way. You know, whether it was a mental um, distress that this put us under, whether it was physical, whether it was a loss of a loved one, whether it was an illness, you know, where people are still struggling with COVID, where countries are in, in dire need. Um, this is a time, if, if not now, when? When can we give back? If we don't do it now, when will we do it? And so I'm very acutely aware of this moment in time that we're coming out of this, hopefully this pandemic, that we don't want to go back to normal, that we want to spend time supporting and helping um, humanity. So what's next for me is finding better ways and more ways to do that. And and um, I applaud that, Arlene. Are you... Uh, doing a lot of those activities under Venture Park? And, and if so, um, what is Venture Park for, for the listeners? So Venture Park is a business growth ecosystem. It's comprised of five different businesses. There um, are two marketing firms. There's a venture capital fund. Uh, there's a business accelerator, um, a commercial kitchen, and a media platform. And so every one of these businesses, while they all sound very different. They all are singularly focused on helping businesses in the food and health and personal care space to scale and grow. And so this is a very unique ecosystem. It's the only one of its kind Um, in Canada. I'm not sure that there's anything of its kind yet anywhere, to be honest, but we think we're onto something around how entrepreneurs need more than just capital. They need more than just marketing. They need the whole support system and they need it to be run, I think, by entrepreneurs who really understand their pain points. So that's what Venture Park's doing. And, and uh, the accelerator and the kitchen are not-for-profits. So we, we just try and give back in that way. 
Wow. I, I didn't know that, actually. That's interesting. Um, a, a brilliant collective you have there. Um, and Aline, uh, we'll, we'll wrap up now, but, but how can listeners get in touch with you online? What's, what's the best way? Uh, online, I am, I'm pretty active on almost all social media platforms, except TikTok. I think I'm too old for TikTok, but I, I have done a few little, <laughs> I have done some reels. I don't know. I haven't quite figured it out yet. Um, <laughs> there's the bad marketer in me talking. <laughs> You can reach me on LinkedIn. You can reach me on Twitter. You can reach me on um, Instagram and um, Facebook, obviously. Um, I'm not really as active on, on uh, Facebook, but I'm very active on LinkedIn and on Twitter. And it's just Arlene Dickinson. And I'm pretty available. I try and get back, but I can't always re- respond to everybody. But I, I, try and, uh, I try and be active as much as I can be. Or on Clubhouse now. Yeah. Oh my gosh. You're, you're a superwoman, Arlene. You're, uh, you're definitely on top of, of all the platforms there. I'll link everything up, um, on the notes and and the post when this goes up. Uh, Arlene, it has been an absolute pleasure. Truly. Um, I feel that in many ways we're, we're, we're kindred spirits from afar. There's, there's so much that I admire about yourself that I really resonate with as an extension of my values. And, uh, I'm sure the listeners are, are going to love you. Um, uh, if you're listening to this, uh, I'm sure you're blown away as just as me, uh, as much as me, but um, thank you so much for your time. Arlene, it's very, very generous of you to, to spend time here on the podcast. Thanks, Ram. Thanks for your interest in my story and, and for spending time and being so vulnerable yourself. As I said, I, I really enjoyed getting to know you better. It's always nice to see the, you know, somebody in person versus just on Clubhouse. So I'm really glad we got to spend the time together. There we have it, Giants. Thank you so much for listening. As always, I deeply appreciate you choosing to listen to this show. Out of all the shows that are out there, hopefully you were able to grab some useful insights. Please send Arlene a high-end hello over on her Instagram. I'm sure she'd love to hear from you. She is highly responsive. Her handle is Arlene Dickinson. Now, if you're enjoying these episodes, I do have one little ask. If I may, it's minimum effort for maximum impact, an iTunes review from you. Please head to giantthinkers.com slash podcast review. That's giantthinkers.com slash podcast review. It'll take you straight to it. Should take you all but 20 seconds. I read and appreciate every single one, but more importantly, it helps get the show in front of more people who may need these stories and life lessons from our world-class guests. Speaking of, a little teaser for our next guest. He is the former global SVP of design and marketing at Fossil Group. Now, Fossil Group offers its products under its proprietary brands, such as Fossil, of course, but also Skagen, Michelle, Relic, and Zodiac. And under the licensed brands, including Armani Exchange, Diesel, DKNY, Emporio Armani, K-Spade New York, Michael Kors, Puma, Tory Burch, Sketches, and BMW. Our next guest was actually the first full-time designer hired for Fossil in 1987 and continued on for a whopping 30 years. 
Really looking forward for you all to hear this. Subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast app, iTunes, uh, Apple Podcasts, of course, uh, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you listen to podcasts and you'll get notified as soon as that goes live. For any questions regarding the podcast or anything at all, the best way to reach me is on my Instagram. Send me a message via my handle, the giant thinker. Lastly, I'll leave you with a quote that I loved from Arlene, who said, entrepreneurs shouldn't take reckless risks. They should take calculated risks, smart risks. <laughs>